fathers and mothers are different. They're just different. Men seek specific things in a wife and women seek specific things in a man. It is the fourth day of the eighth month of the 2022nd year of our Lord and sociologists and psychologists have lots of terms and reasons for a phenomenon where a person might be attracted to a mate representing the parent of the opposite gender. Men look for women who are like mom and women look for a man who's like dad. I'll save you the tedious task of searching through reading, reviewing pages and pages of research. They've come up with all kinds of names and all kinds of reasons and I'll tell you what it is. I'll give you the secret right here, right now. It's your normal. You think you're normal, right? Well, I'm normal. We all think we're normal. Virtually every person on the planet thinks they're normal. Now there's people that do things differently, but what is normal? Normal is impossible to define and quantify because it's subjective to everything. Even siblings that are raised in the exact same home with the exact same parents in a very similar way have slightly different experiences. You were uniquely created by God, so you experience the world uniquely, different from everybody else. This is why creating a new family is such a process. The husband brings his normal, the wife brings her normal, and together they take their individual normals and try to meld them and mold them into a cohesive, unique environment in which they bring children. And those children then experience it as, you guessed it, their normal. By the time I was 14, I dreamed of being married, setting up a home, having children. At 14, my husband had built his first motorized go-kart, learned all about motors, built stuff, broke stuff, made stuff better. But that was something that he was attracted to. And I was attracted to the idea of having a family, having a home. Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers bring their ability to create and nurture together where they grow a family. All of us who live brightly know we must fill our lamp with oil, we must trim our wicks, We know that God blesses the work of our hands, not our feet on a stool. We know that God will direct our path, but not force us to move. We've talked about fathers, we've talked about mothers. Today, I'm gonna talk about raising children. I'm gonna help you plot a course, set a trajectory, establish opportunities to make adjustments along the way. You husbands know God created you to be the foundation of the family upon which everything else is built. You strive to go kill your dragons, bring home the bacon, and keep alert to any threat to your kingdom. You exemplify Father God in leadership, provision, loyalty, love, stability. You're not a foundation of sand. You are solid bedrock. And you wives know God created you to be the apple of your husband's eye, a valuable delight worthy of the energy and effort to come back home to. You're creating a home that's a refuge. It's refreshing. It requires all your gifts and talents to operate smoothly, often with a side hustle. You know, we got other things going on. Today, I'm going to give you seven tools for raising great kids. This is the Living Brightly podcast with Elaine Cross. I'm Elaine Cross, your host. Raising kids seems like it's a little more daunting in 2022, and yet it's one of the most exciting and exhausting endeavors you will ever undertake. The rewards are priceless. Seven tools for raising great kids. That's what we're gonna focus on today on Living Brightly, where we learn to be individually a lamp, burning bright, 
being that light that God has placed in us to those around us who are living in darkness and together a city on a hill. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Maybe you're married with children and you want some guidance. Maybe you're a single mother or single father, you're widowed, divorced on your second or third marriage. Maybe you haven't even gotten married yet and you're still seeking a partner to build a home with. There's so many, many possibilities and so many, many different types of situations, but I'm gonna give you a design that's best suited for raising great kids. So I'm gonna give you an ideal. If you have children, regardless of their ages, you can implement these tools and start making course corrections in their lives, in your life. You can take it and modify it to suit your situation. If you're not yet married, you can still implement many of these to help you get prepared, to help you be ready to raise great kids. Kids that burn brightly, kids that know who they are and what they're doing. We need good leaders. I'll admit right up front, some of these things I didn't know about when I was raising kids. But my self-evaluation and growing in wisdom, I have learned these things and I have found them to be incredibly, incredibly valuable and important. Some of these things I tried and I failed more than I succeeded because I just, well, I wasn't as wise as I am now. (laughs) God has taken me through a lot and God has healed me of a lot of twisted, stinking thinking. And I wasn't taught these things. I had to figure out some of them, but most of them I got through trial and error. And God has walked with me through more failure than success, I feel like sometimes. And yet I see my kids and I know for sure God had his hand in it. My first marriage was a failure in many ways, but the most succinct way to put it is we came from very similar versions of normal. Unfortunately, that normal was dysfunctional at best, disastrous at least. After we got divorced, I spent five years actively working on myself because I knew the statistics were bleak and I did not want to repeat the disaster and I didn't want to make it worse. I didn't want to jump from the fire pan into the fire, which often happens. Therefore, like building any structure, first you have to lay a solid foundation or all the other work that you try to do just is going to come to naught. So for me, after I got divorced, my foundation was I had to get my head straight So the first tool to raising great kids is be the best you, you can be. Now I tell my kids this a lot, especially those who aren't married yet, because hey, if you want to find the best spouse you can get, you got to be the best you you can be so you can attract the best spouse. You want to get a wife that will support you and encourage you and be that helpmate to you that can help you be more than you can be on your own you got to start with being the best you, you, you can be, right? She can't fix you. So take a critical look at yourself, your home life, your goals. How's your relationship with God? Are you active in your church? Do you spend time every day communicating with God? Are you, do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Are you attentive to his still small voice calling you to be better? Are you doing things you know you shouldn't? Do you avoid or procrastinate tasks that you should be doing? Who have you allowed into your inner circle of friends? Do they encourage you to be better or drag you back into immature behavior? Can you be alone with yourself in silence? Are you using your time in a balanced way? 
Or are you obsessed with something or off balance in some way? You know, do you spend five hours at the gym every night? Well, that's not a lot of time to help God do other things or help friends or date if you're spending five hours a day at the gym, right? Unless you're a personal trainer and then you're only working five hours a day. So you should be doing eight hours a day. (laughs) You get my point. Do you honor others? What is the Holy Spirit bringing to mind right now? Is there something that the Holy Spirit is saying? What about this? Well, okay, jot that down. That's something to work on. We always have something to work on. If you're still breathing, you're imperfect. That's just how it is. Because if you're breathing, you don't have it all figured out yet. So if the Holy Spirit did bring something to mind, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do? There's always something that God is working on in us. Are you aware of it? If you're not aware of anything that God is working on in you, then first thing you need to do is build your relationship with God. I suggest that about every month, you do a critical audit of yourself. Check for areas that God has prompted you. You know, keep that prayer journal or a regular journal. Even if you only write in it once a month, spend some time praying to God and write down the things that he's showing you, things that you've been doing really good, things that he's proud of. And things that he's like, you know, the way you were talking to your coworker the other day, you might want to think about that. (sighs) Okay, so you jot it down, how you use your words. God is always trying to prompt us to help us transform to be more Christ-like. Are you aware of it? And are you actively trying to do that? God also wants to improve your life balance. Are you doing what needs done in all the areas of your life? God, your health, your finances, your relationships, both with friends and family. Have you called your mom lately? When was the last time she heard from you? And did you call dad? You get my point. So the first tool is really be the best you can be. And I know I listed a bunch of questions there. I'll put those in the show notes so that you can go back and get them because there's good questions to ask. How are you doing? Do a a self-check. What can I be doing more of? What should I be doing less of? What's a behavior I need to put under control? The Bible tells us to put your body under submission, to not let your emotions control you. We are living in an emotional overload. Oh my goodness. Everything is emotionally based. Every appeal, every advertisement, every political idea emotions are what sells. So we are flooded with emotions all the time. And yet biblically, the Bible says your heart is deceitful above all else. You cannot trust your emotions. So you need to balance them out. I'm not saying you completely ignore them because there is an intuition, especially for women. There's there's intuition there. There's good stuff there. But when you let it control everything, it's out of balance. It's out of whack. That's not the best you you can be. Great people raise great children. That's just a fact. The second tool for raising great children is be fully committed to your spouse. Following God, your spouse is number two. Man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. The father gives the wife to the husband at the wedding. It's this symbolic transfer from the father's protection and provision and support to the husband's protection, provision, and support. And the two are to become one and create a family. That is a family. Children come and go. The husband and wife, that's the family. 
This is the single most important relationship you have, of course, following your relationship with God. So if your relationship with God right now is not great, if you're not talking to him every day, you're not ready to talk to a spouse every day. You're not ready to share your struggles and your successes with a spouse. And you're not ready to hear their struggles and their successes and and be supportive. Life gets crazy. And together, the two of you push back against the chaos that comes at you at all fronts. If you're not together, your enemy will expose a crack and exploit it in an effort to destroy your family and you as an individual, each child that you have as well, and every person in your life. Your marriage relationship, your husband-wife relationship is vital. Husbands need to be needed. So affirm him in your weakness. Don't pretend weakness. Don't feign weakness. We women are the weaker vessel. Admit where you have it. There's things that we just can't do. By golly, there are times I can't open the pickle jar and he can. Thank you because I'm trying to get lunches together and I can't get the stinking pickle jar open, right? It seems silly, but it's more than that, okay? We talked about fathers. We talked about mothers. A lot of that is in those Wives, it's very important for you to affirm the father-child relationship without putting the child between the two of you. And this is why I bring this up because parents are plural word. You're not supposed to do this alone. And sometimes we can pit the parents against each other because the children get in between. And again, wives carry the children for nine months. We protect them. We pray for them. We nurture them. We hold them closely. We have a spiritual deep connection with our children when we give birth to them. And the father's just been a witness, just been watching from the outside. And he's excited, he's, he's cool, but wives have to be aware and nurture that father-child relationship, each one. And yes, the mother's gonna be the, the primary nurturer, but mothers can shut fathers out of children's lives very easily. It's a lot harder for a husband to shut a wife out, a mother out, unless you know there's divorce, whatever, there's all kinds of bad situations. But you have to remember, you're not raising children you're raising future leaders. And future leaders need to know structure and stability. By showing your commitment to each other, you're showing your children that they are in a safe place. And by that, I mean, spend time together, go on date nights, go on trips, go on vacations, go on work trips without the children. Leave the children with grandparents and neighbors, church friends. There's people that you can trust in your life. They will be fine. I mean, unless you have a a six-month-old child who is nursing or, you know, there's medical issues or other things, for the most part, if your husband's going on business trips and he wants you to come along because it's a big conference and a lot of the wives are going, make arrangements to go with him. Let him show you off. Let him be proud of the fact that you're one of the 20% of wives who were able to come. Be that for him. The first and foremost commitment is the husband-wife connection. The children will come, the children will go, the children will have more children, (laughs) and you'll get to hold your grandbabies. It'd be great. Part of this being committed to your spouse is get on the same page with stuff. And especially as newlyweds, you need to have a regular business meeting, a regular husband and wife, adult family kind of meeting where you go over the budget you talk about the issues that you're having, any expectations that you might feel or, or things that you're uncomfortable with. Finances have a sneaky way to chip away at your connection. And your enemy knows this and your enemy uses that against you. And almost always one of the spouses takes care of the mundane part of actually writing the checks and paying the bills, right? It doesn't mean the other spouse is to be unaware of everything that's going on. 
yes, every day you should be talking to your spouse if there's an issue at work or there's an issue with your parents or extended family. But when you set a time, a regular time to go over your budget, your plans, your expectations, the run of the mill stuff that's going on with the house, you're running a small enterprise in running a home. And if there's a leak under the sink and you know you're gonna have to take care of it, you just let the other person know. It comes up when you take this time to set aside. And I say this as a meeting because it should not be date night. And yes, the date nights in movies where there's issues festering because they haven't actually talked to each other for two weeks, it always makes for a perfect fight scene or something between the couple because they haven't had the chance to have these discussions. So if you set a time to have a budget meeting or a adult family meeting where just the husband and wife sit down and they go over basic things, are we going on vacation this year? Are we not going on vacation this year? Are we going to plant a garden this year? Are we not going to plant a garden this year? Things come up. My husband and I give blood on a regular basis. And a couple times I've gotten really tired or weak after giving blood. And then I realized that if I had a good breakfast, if I had like eggs and ham or something, some real protein rich breakfast, gave it lunchtime, I'd be okay. Well, then one time I went, he was at work. And even though I had eaten a decent breakfast, I was like ready to pass out. (laughs) And the phlebotomists that were there were like, if you don't get up within 30 minutes, we have to call a squad. That's our standard protocol. So I called my husband at work. I'm like, you got to come get me because I don't think I can drive home. I can walk out, but I just don't feel comfortable myself driving. And he's like, that's fine. So he came and he got me and he said, okay, you're done. You're not giving blood anymore. And I understand his wisdom in that, but (laughs) I still get notices. I still see advertisements. I know they need blood. They always, always need blood. I have given gallons of blood. I have done all that I can, but occasionally this will come up. So my husband will tell me, hey, I'm gonna go give blood this Friday. And I immediately think, oh, maybe I should try. And he looks at me, he goes, no, you're done giving blood. (laughs) And I admit, yes, you're right. I'm done giving blood. Just little things like that. What's coming up on your schedule this week, the next couple of weeks, just to keep everybody on the same page. Because otherwise, expectations, unmet needs, things that are are happening, extra stressors, you get a chance to kind of express that, okay? Again, if you get into a, a good rhythm, you can discuss a lot of this stuff on a daily basis. A lot of this you can handle on a daily basis. Finances, it's best if you have a budget meeting. It's best if you have a budget Dave Ramsey in Financial Peace University is great for getting families established on a budget so that they can work their money and make their money work for them and not be a slave to overspending misuse of funds. The first tool, be the best you you can be. The second tool is connect with your spouse, be fully committed to your spouse. And to do that, you have to set aside time to be together in a romantic way and together in the fact that you are running a small enterprise in a business way and separate those two, delineate those two so that you can really date and spend time with your spouse and you can take care of business, okay? Number three, build, I do that because I'm just, this one's tough. This one is probably the hardest one of these tools that I'm going to give you. And it's build an effective environment. Build an effective environment. What does that mean? Okay, so while you were completing the first task, the first tool, 
taking a critical look at yourself, evaluating what you believe where you're at, what you need to improve, what you, you know, just where you are spiritually, emotionally, physically, whatever. I want you to take that one step further, especially with respect to children, and ideally before you have children, individually look at and kind of evaluate what your parents did well and some things you think they didn't do well or things that you would like to be done differently. For me, all my years growing up, I had never heard my mother tell me she loved me except one time when I had told her I loved her and she responded, yeah, I love you too. And I had told her I loved her because she'd given me money to buy a skirt and she hardly ever had cash. She didn't really give us money. That was something that my dad always took care of. And it dawned on me when I was to the age where I was ready to have children that I didn't like that. And I wanted my kids to hear me say, I love you a lot. Another situation from my own childhood was I have several older siblings. The first few older siblings, my parents were extremely strict, very authoritarian, very overbearing, just do what I said because I said so kind of parents. And then there were a couple really big rebellious events and they did a little counseling. They took a few classes and their philosophy for raising children shifted 180 degrees and they became extremely tolerant. At least that's how it appeared to me. Things got very, you know, anything goes. Now, I think this was their attempt to allow natural consequences to take effect within our lives, which of course it did. But it was such a big dramatic change from ultra control micromanagement to no control at all that, of course, major rebellious events occurred again with the other kids. <laughs> um, by the time I got old enough to think of something, I thought the only way I could rebel was to be good. And I don't say that to brag, but I became a bit of a prude or I don't know, I became very judgmental and I fell in love with rules and laws and you have to follow them. And I still do that. It can drive people crazy, including myself. <laughs> all of my siblings survived, but we all struggled in our own way. So take the time to not only evaluate how you were raised and have your spouse evaluate how he or she was raised, and then you need to talk together and decide how you want to set your home up to work, what things you want to envision in your home when you're looking at children growing up. Establish kind of a trajectory, a destiny you want for your children. Do you want them to be honest, hardworking, take responsibility, accept credit, do that well, to advocate for themselves, to know their value and their worth? Those are all great objectives almost every parent would embrace. Okay. So how do you think you raise an adult who is honest and takes responsibility well? Hmm. Well, you have to create an environment where those things are valued. People being honest is highly, highly valued. People taking responsibility for their actions is highly, highly valued. Well, how do you do that? We have to create a home, an environment that's non-judgmental where kids can be honest, where anyone can be honest with their choices, especially if they're bad choices, especially if there was consequences to the choices. You can't throw the hammer down on judgment and oppression because somebody confessed to doing something wrong. You're just going to cause them to shut down. They're not going to share anything. You have to be calm and you have to respond with open questions in a very mellow manner. And that can be really hard. And this is something I learned to do. 
So I know you can learn to do it because I grew up in a home that was very passive aggressive. And then my first marriage was not what I would call calm or non judgmental. <laughs> learn to say things like, hmm, hmm, okay, okay. So how did that work out for you? Tell me more. How did they respond? Or what do you think is going to happen? How would you respond if somebody did that to you? See, I'm not saying there's no rules, there's no consequences. Rules have to be appropriate to their developmental age as well as their chores, and they have to be consistently applied. And the consequences have to be related to the issue at hand. You can't create this compilation of many small infractions that you've gone unnoticed or unaddressed that build up to this detonation of an atom bomb. Parenting is a lot, a lot, a lot of work daily. Now, take note, children will sometimes open up to one spouse rather than the other. And that may be because they're more comfortable. It might be because the son needs to talk to the father or the daughter needs to talk to the mother. Or it could be that the daughter wants to talk to the dad and the son wants to talk to the mom. This is normal and it's very common. Don't get all jealous, women. Don't get all whiny. Why isn't she talking to me? <laughs> Let it go. And you have to plan for this because this will happen right? And how you're going to handle these kind of situations, because confidence is huge. Holding someone's confidence is very, very huge, especially a child who's learning how to be an adult in this society where confidence is vital. But spouses don't keep secrets from each other, at least for an extended period of time. But when you're dealing with something and your child is struggling, you can always ask, can I tell your dad about this? Can I talk to mom about this? Or even better, you know, you should really talk to dad because he has some great ideas. He might have some different insight that would help too. Sometimes it's because they're having a problem with the other spouse. And in that case, you definitely need to get them to talk to each other. You can break the ice, you know, well, do you want me to tell mom first? And then you can come and tell her and, and you two can work it out so that they don't have to do the initial so that the mom can get over the shock of it or the dad can get over the shock of whatever it is and then can be calm and non-judgmental when they actually get a chance to talk to them. <sighs> there's wisdom in that. There's a place for all sorts of ways to handle this. And there's lots of different things to think about. But building an effective environment is not just saying, oh, I want my kids to be honest and take responsibility when they do something wrong and be honorable to other people and clean up after themselves. Well, you need to create an environment where those things are valued and, and establish natural consequences that happen. If you have a family house rule that kids have certain chores, then there's things that happen. Be the best you you can be. Be fully committed and connected to your spouse. Build an effective environment that propels your children to a destiny that you want them to achieve. You can create an environment where they have to lie to stay out of trouble, or you can create an environment where they will be honest with you about everything that happens. It's your choice. And it really depends on you because you're the parents. You're setting the stage. You're setting the field. The fourth tool in raising great kids is having family meetings. Now, these are not the same as staying connected to your spouse and having a budget meeting. Kids don't need to sit in on budget meetings. Kids have no say in the budget. Let me say that again. Kids have no say in the budget. The parents decide if the kids get any kind of budget, any kind of allowance. And frankly, I lean against giving kids an allowance you might pay them for a special chore, not their regular chores. Say dad's going to clean out the garage and he says, okay, any kid who wants to help me gets X amount of dollars to help me. 
but not because it's their turn to clean the toilet. They get $5 for cleaning the toilet. No, every kid has to take a turn cleaning the toilet because that's why we had you, right? I mean, come on. Running a house is hard work. You got extra bodies that are making it dirty. They have to help clean it. It's just how it works. But family meetings are a time to have everybody in the room together. And again, it's kind of like setting the environment. It is showing the children that the family, the core family is so important. We're going to set aside time once a month, once every couple of weeks, whatever, whatever works for you. You're going to have a notebook, family meeting notebook, and it's going to write on the outside, family meeting notebook. And on the inside, you're going to have the date, August 4th, 2022 agenda. And you're going to put the agenda down there and you're going to, you know, you're going to talk about whatever's coming up. Mary's going away to band camp next week, so she's not going to be here to do her chores. So we're going to divide up the chores equally because every time somebody leaves on vacation or because of a mission trip or a band camp or whatever, everybody else picks up the slack. That's how families work. So this month, this is how we're going to divide up the chores. Make it fun. Make it um, a special meal. Make special cookies. Have each person have a place in the agenda. And yeah, if you've got three kids and and two of them are old enough to participate, but the youngest is two, barely talking, give them a spot so that you show and declare to all the members of the family that this is a full member of the family. And even though they can't say a lot, they can be valued in their own space that they're there, they're part of the family, they might say something, I want spaghetti for dinner, you know, whatever. (laughs) And speaking of I want spaghetti for dinner, this is a great time to set up a menu, because this always comes up constant discussion. I cook every day, I cook every dinner. And after I cook every dinner for three weeks straight, I can't think of something I want to cook. I can cook anything. And for the most part, they're going to pick something that they want. And I can tell you right now, my husband's going to say spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> he just will. Or he'll say turkey, which I've discussed already on this podcast. So it's either turkey and mashed potatoes or it's spaghetti and meatballs. So sometimes I'll say, what would you like for dinner except for spaghetti and meatballs and except for turkey? Because turkey takes a few days to thaw out and spaghetti and meatballs is way too many carbs for me. So I I need something different. (laughs) Give me something different to make. When you can set kind of a meal plan for the week, that helps with grocery shopping and it helps with involvement by family members. Each kid can come up with an idea. And then for me, when my kids turned about 10, not only did they pick a meal, but they helped shop for the meal. They helped cook the meal. And at 10, they're not doing a whole lot. And it's a little bit of a hassle. By the time they were 14, they were doing it. They were cooking the meal by themselves and I was doing other things. So there's a lot of value in this because it's an opportunity to show them how to function as a group, group dynamics. It's also a time to share struggles or issues. Now, ideally, if you know, if your kids haven't been bullied at school, he's going to come to you right after school and say, this kid's bullying me at school, and you're going to deal with it right then. But if one daughter says the other daughter is is taking her hair bands all the time, and she can't find them, and it's becoming frustrating, then this might be a time to bring it up. And maybe you'll talk about it there in the meeting, because you only have two girls, and those are all the children that you have. So okay, the four of us are going to sit down, and we're going to talk about this. (laughs) But say you have five people and it only involves two of them. It's like, okay, thanks for bringing that to our attention. We're going to discuss this after the family meeting. The two of you stay behind and, and we'll talk about it. The rest of you them can leave then. It's a time to 
kind of just keep the kids involved in the idea that this is a family and you don't allow anything to interfere with family meeting night or family meeting hour. So no cell phones, no sporting events. You know, so you're going to set this time. You don't have friends over. You put it on the calendar and then they're going to be there and everybody's going to participate. And you have to allow some time for discussion. You can go over the chore chart. You can go over the dinner menu. You can go over routine things. Oh, the sink in the bathroom is leaking. So please use the sink in the kitchen or please use the sink in the other bathroom until the plumber comes or until we get it fixed. It's an opportunity for the kids to see too that they're not just here. They're part of something. They're part of this family when they look at their chore chart and they see, I have to clean the toilet again and she gets to vacuum the carpet and so on and so forth. Then they get to hear that the car has to go in to be fixed. So we're not going anywhere next week because we're not going to have the car or whatever. To whatever degree, and based on the age, however you're going to involve them in that, it gives them an idea to see all the work that goes into running and maintaining the home. It also gives you an opportunity to build on the gifts and the talents that each one has. Now, this isn't a time to, oh, Johnny got an A on his report card again, and oh, Sally got a C. That's not it. That's not appropriate. This is a time to build a family connection with each other and to make sure those interpersonal relationships, sibling to sibling, sibling to parent, are all functioning pretty good. And frankly, they're going to function pretty good if you do this on a regular basis. And if you create an environment where they can be honest, they're going to tell you. These are the the tools that it takes to raise. And really, it's not great kids. It's great productive members of society who are going to be our future leaders. So this is really seven tools to raise future leaders. I'm going to change it. I'm just going to go back and I'm going to change that. Family meetings. So important prepared them to work out interpersonal group dynamics. Living with a group of people is is interesting, but these guys grew up into it, right? They started as babies and they came in. They weren't there when the husband and the wife had to create the new normal, the new environment that we're going to raise our children in. They grew up in that environment and anything that's not like your house is not quite the same. And some things are going to look at and go, that's not normal. Well, you want the things that they say that's not normal to, to be things that you don't want them doing anyway. Let me take a break right here for a second and just remind you how excited I am that you might put these seven ideas, these seven concepts into action to raising future leaders. The United States, the world needs good leaders. And looking at the uh, GECs, the government indoctrination camps known as public schools, There's not a lot of great stuff coming out of there without parents that are filling in the gaps or homeschooling. I'm a huge proponent of homeschooling. So thanks for doing your part to make tomorrow secure by raising up leaders. This is a value for value podcast. So if you find value in this, I ask that you would put a number on it, whatever fits your budget, head over to elainecross.com and make a donation. And if you want, you can send me a note at donation at elainecross.com. That's an email. So let's carry on and finish this list of seven tools for raising leaders, tomorrow's leaders that we desperately need. Okay. Tool number five, you are raising adults. You're not raising children. You're not raising friends. You're not raising students. 
So take the role as a wise Sherpa, not a sage that, you know, is off detached from everything. They come and see you when they really need advice or a pal, another best friend that you can be all things to. Animals are driven by their instinct. They're not self-aware and they can only communicate on very basic levels. You cannot train your children as if they're a dog. When you train a dog, you can train a dog to only eat when you give it a command to eat. And it'll sit there with a bowl full of food in front of it, looking at you, looking at the bowl, looking at you, looking at the bowl, waiting for you to say eat. And some parents try to raise their children that way. Productive members of society must master free will. They must master unlimited choices that are out there. And they must learn to deal with every condemnation of their conscience. Now, some of the condemnation of their conscience is lies that their enemy has planted, and some of it is the Holy Spirit convicting them of their behavior because it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. Think about a child learning to walk. So your daughter learns to walk and falls way more times than she succeeds, but she doesn't give up. She falls down, she bonks her head, she lands on her back, she bounces on her bum, but she persistently with determination props herself up, tries again, and propels herself to success. She learns to walk. Did you help her walk? Did you teach her how to walk? She taught herself how to walk. You created an environment that was helpful. You removed the coffee table because it was a danger. And then once she could climb up and follow along the couch, you put the coffee table back so that she could go from the couch to the coffee table, the coffee table to the couch. So you helped create the environment where she could learn, where she could succeed. She had to overcome what appeared to be failure after failure after failure to learn to walk. We all did. And just like walking, we learned to talk that way. We learned mathematics that way. Oh my goodness, mathematics homework. We learned driving a car. Children develop what the world needs in tomorrow's leaders when they can learn to persevere through failure and missteps, right? Poor parents jump in to buffer the blow. They, they want to limit the struggle. They want them to have it a little easier. The problem is they only weaken the child to stay a child way too long, long into where they should be an adult. And they finally mature only because they're on their own in the world that they're vastly unprepared for. My daughter lived in the dorm because I wanted her to live in the dorm for at least a year. And there were students in college, in the dorms, who had never washed a dish, didn't know how to wash their clothes, didn't even know how to turn a washing machine on. That's not preparing leaders. That's not raising adults. We do learn more from our failures, and we certainly learn way more from a failure than an easy win. True success is born out of persistence in the face of failure determination in the face of doubt. Mistakes, missteps, bad decisions, and struggle push us to succeed. You can't teach your child to think, but you can allow an emerging adult to make choices, accept the consequences, good or bad, and they do that through critical thinking. Critical thinking comes from, well, I tried this and that's what happened. I tried that and that's what happened. You get a bigger picture. You get a bigger understanding of how the world works so you can think critically. And you learn that in simple situations. So when you get to a more complex situation, the critical thinking task, that skill set is already in place. Your role as a parent is to represent God. Father God is loving, accepting, connected heart to heart, wants to communicate heart to heart. There's reasonable, relevant consequences that naturally flow from bad choices. 
children come from the womb liars. And your job is to create an environment where they're safe enough to be honest, even at great cost. Even when they're trying to juggle between multiple choices and free will and their conscience and all these other things, right? They're trying to adult and adulting is hard. You're an adult because you've matured. Well, where do you mature? You mature in the family home, right? You, you mature ideally when you have the guidance of a Sherpa, somebody who can walk alongside you. A Sherpa takes a mountain climber up the Himalayan mountains. Now, the Himalayan mountains are unique to every other mountain range in the world. And there are people there that are skilled and experienced and knowledgeable about paths to take and footholds to get and places where you can fall and places where you can fail and places where you can slip but not die, (laughs) right? That is the role of the parent, Not to just tell them what they can and can't do, although there's parts of that, sure. I also think you get what I'm saying in that even from the time when they're very small, allowing them to exercise their their freedom of choice and their ability to make decisions for themselves can teach them things that they can then hold on to forever because a failure you don't soon forget, especially if you try it a few times and fail and then succeed. But again, in learning to walk isn't just about standing upright and putting one foot in front of the other. It's building that muscle, building that structure and that strength to withstand the pressures of standing on two feet as opposed to sitting on your bum. You need to allow their children or your young adults to process solutions, process how they can deal with what life throws at them. To think critically, you have to practice thinking critically. And in the inside out, it's not outside in. I can tell you what to do and I can tell you how to behave and I can control you to such a point that you do those things. And then as soon as you're away from me, by golly, you're gonna do whatever you darn well please. Or I can create a place where I can be the guide who is wise, been there before, done that before. And this is that continuation of creating the environment. This is taking the role. So you've created the environment, but now you also have to take the role to step back and let them make mistakes and guide them as they make the mistakes and ask those questions and encourage them to process what they've experienced, what they've seen to come up with a solution. That's how you can learn from the inside out to handle and to process the chaos that life throws at you where they can learn to individually push back the chaos in their life and to keep their life in a place of order and adultness. Step five and step three really go hand in hand, building an effective environment and raising adults. There is a program that I highly recommend, and I've actually taught this program that I'm gonna recommend to you. And I think it's a fabulous program. It does this stuff, this little part of this, really good. It's a Bible-based structure and it's called Loving Your Kids on Purpose by Danny Silk. And it is very powerful in how it guides you to really make a connection to your kids and allow them the freedom to learn while they're in your home when you can help them process through the mistakes that they're going to make. They're going to make mistakes. Either they're going to make mistakes and you're going to help them process and figure out how to solve them You know, they're going to make a mess. You're going to teach them how to clean it up. You're not just going to clean it up for them. Or you're going to shelter them and confine them in a little golden cage 
and then you're going to set them free and the rest of us are going to have to help teach them. And it's going to be much harder because they're going to be much older and they're not going to trust you. So not going to come back to you. And that's not at all what we want, right? We want generational blessing. So we have to teach and allow our children to learn by creating an environment and then taking the role necessary to allow God to develop them and grow them. Because we're just here to help God mature these children, mature these adults to be productive members of society that carry their own light. And they're their own light from a very young age. You don't have to be 20 to make an impact in the world for Christ. I do recommend Danny Silk's Loving Your Kids on Purpose. It's a really good program. It goes into more depth than I have time to go into right here. Number six, remain a united front. And I think maybe I talked about this a little bit in staying committed, connected to your spouse. But staying connected to your spouse is really about intentionally working on your marriage intentionally connecting to your wife or your husband uh, so that the father-mother union is strong. Number six is remain a unified front in that together you have united to create this family and together you can do so much more than you could as an individual. And when you're together, and even when you're not together, you are one flesh, as the Bible says, the two become one flesh. And you have to remain that in public, especially in the eyes and the hearing of your children, but really anywhere. Every week, practically, I say we have to push back against the chaos. Nothing can cause chaos in a family than the two parents split or are divided. It can be subtle or it can be sudden. Um, and you might not even notice it, but the children are savvy and they pick up on these things. They, they don't miss anything because if they can see a way to make it easier for themselves, they're going to exploit it. In Deuteronomy 21, 18, it states, if any person has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or his mother when they discipline him, he does not listen to them. So a stubborn and rebellious son doesn't listen. Okay, well, the English is omits a little bit. The part it leaves out is voice. It's the voice of the father and the voice of the mother. So if any person has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, they discipline him, but he does not listen. Okay, this happens and it causes rebellion because there's two voices. Okay, you've got the mom says one thing and the dad says another. Or the dad says one thing and the mom says another. That's not a united front. So let me clarify. First, a parent throws down an edict that is just huge consequence and the other parent isn't, either isn't there or even when they hear about it, disagrees with it. Okay, so it happens, you know, for many reasons, the the parent who is with the child who throws down the gauntlet is stressed, they're hungry, they're overwhelmed, uh, you know, works goofy or, you know, trouble with the parents, whatever. And as the other parent, you have a choice. You've actually, you have no choice. If you are not the parent that threw down this gauntlet and you hear about it and you don't agree with it, suck it up, buttercup. You have no choice but to go along. This is vital. You cannot have the father voice and the mother voice. It is a our voice. 
when one parent speaks, both parents are speaking. Okay? It is vital at this point that the the parent that is just showing up on the scene backs the other parent up 100%. You, You can't balk. You can't shake your head. You can't question the decision in front of the children. It's done. If you've ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, and Pharaoh sends out these decrees and so it is written, so it shall be. (laughs) Okay, that's it. Uh, Like it or not, a decree has come from Pharaoh's throne and everyone in the kingdom is going to honor it. And because the husband and wife share the throne together, the two are one flesh, doesn't matter who said it, it is what it is. You might also see where as opposed to the parent not being in the right space, the, the child does something that's inappropriate and the other spouse just doesn't seem to think that it's inappropriate. You cannot call out the other parent. Okay, so in the first example, the kid's being obnoxious. Mom's trying to get something done so she can cook dinner. The kid comes in and is obnoxious again and she's like, that's it, you're not eating dinner tonight or tomorrow or the day after. <laughs> and dad comes home and he's like, Kids not eating dinner for three days? Uh, Okay, kids not eating dinner for three days. (laughs) That's all you can do. It's extreme. Kids not gonna starve to death, okay? In the second situation, the girl's gonna go with her girlfriends to, I don't know, down the street to the store or whatever. And the girl comes out in shorts that you thought you threw away two weeks ago. And the mom says, you know your dad doesn't like those shorts. You better go change. Well, the mom has just thrown the dad under the bus. It's more subtle, but it definitely separates one parent from the other because she's not saying that I have a problem with the pants. Only dad has a problem with the pants. That's not good. It's we, our, your father and I, your mother and I, always together. Now, are the parents going to discuss this later? Absolutely. (laughs) Especially about dinner for three days. (laughs) But you know what? Johnny's going to be fine. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to give them a snack at four o'clock because you eat dinner at five so that the kid doesn't really miss dinner. Your kid is not going to starve without dinner for three days. You're feeding them breakfast. You're feeding them lunch. If they're anything like my kids are getting a snack after school. So they're getting, you know, a mid-afternoon snack, three o'clock or something because dad doesn't get home till six. They're going to be fine. It's going to be inconvenient, but you have to live with it. You threw down the gauntlet or she threw down the gauntlet. So together you threw down the gauntlet and that's that. You go in the other room, you discuss it. And you know what? The kid will probably learn. When mom says something, you better just zip it. Because <laughs> when mom's hangry, it's not pretty. And I can attest to that. This mama gets hangry. And I have thrown down the gauntlet a few times. And I felt really stupid reinforcing it two days later. And I don't think it was meals, but it was something, I'm sure. It may have been no TV for three days. And we didn't have TV per se. We only had like an hour that I would let the kids watch TV. It was only videos that they could watch. So it was everything was really kind of controlled. <laughs> but when they don't have that hour of TV, like when I'm normally cooking dinner, it makes it harder on me. <laughs> so, you know, usually you have your own consequences as well as the child having consequences. You just have to live with it. Okay. This is a great topic to bring up during that adult budget meeting. <sighs> Right? So you're talking about your finances, the house, the children. Oh, let's talk about what happened here. Okay. Everything is our, we, us. It's not mine and yours. It's our house. It's our finances. It's our children. 
it's our son, it's our daughter. We are a family and the husband and wife are one. So if you have to say your mother and I don't like those shorts because you're beautiful, you are a precious gift from God, go change your shorts and give them to me. Okay. You cannot say something like, oh, your father is so inconsiderate. I told him dinner would be ready and he's late again. Instead, you could say your father is so loving. He works so hard to provide for us. He's given us this beautiful home and this tasty food. Don't you agree we can wait for him? Don't you think it's good to wait for him? I do. How you talk about your spouse anywhere, with your children, with your coworkers, with the ladies in your Bible study, anywhere you go, everywhere you go, at home, at work, at parties, like I said, it's always an opportunity to build up your spouse. And it's not like your spouse is hearing. It's your ears are hearing your voice elevate your spouse, lifting them up. And when you hear yourself lifting your spouse up, even when things are not, you know, roses and butterflies, you know, the work and the value that you have in this family builds you up in those times of stress. Don't throw one under the bus or the other under the bus. And don't disagree or argue in front of your children. Children rely on the parents for security and peace. And when children can hear their parents fighting, even in the other room, it erodes their security. It erodes their peace. It it builds anxiety and fear. A lack of security kind of can impact every part of your body. So do not argue or disagree in front of your children. I don't care if that means you have to go, we're going to go get coffee together. Smiles, smiles. And you walk out the door and you get in the car and you drive to the park at the end of the street and you have your discussion and work through your issues and get to the end of it. And you, you know, swing by the coffee shop on the way back and we got our coffee. (laughs) You know, adults are going to disagree. Adults are going to get flustered. It's our job to put on a united front. Always, always, forever. And it's okay if something comes up and you're not comfortable giving an answer. I do this a lot. Your dad and I are going to have to talk about that. Your dad and I are going to have to talk. I don't know. We're going to talk about it. We'll come to a decision. We'll let you know. Well, dad told me, you know what? Your dad and I are talking about it. We'll get to it, you know, because what happens is if a child asks one parent and the one parent says no, a lot of times they'll go and ask the other parent when the other parent is around without knowing that the other parent already told no. Does that make sense? I think I twisted that somehow. So let's say Joe asks mom if he can spend the night at Troy's house. Okay. And mom says, no, you're not spending the night at Troy's house. Last time you spent the night at Troy's house, you guys were up till 11 o'clock. It's too late. No. Well, then dad comes home and Joe goes out and runs out to dad while he's in the parking Hey, dad, can I spend the night at Troy's house? Well, if dad is just showing up from work, <laughs> The words that better come out of dad's mouth are is, let me talk to your mom about it. (laughs) And frankly, the mom should have said, let me talk to your dad about it. Because then she could have expressed her concerns. And dad could have said, you know what? But it's Saturday if he stays up till 11 o'clock. You know, the parents are Christian. They're only watching good shows or they play board games, whatever. Right? Because again, we want our children to have the freedom to make good choices and then deal with the consequences after. And the consequences may be that, Nine o'clock in the morning, you have to be at the ball field because you have a ball game and your team is depending on you. So you have to be there and they have to play tired and they won't do as good. And 
they'll suffer the consequences of that, whatever. You know, there's so many different things. You get my point. You have to be on the same page. You have to be a united front from the time they are one till they are 21. And frankly, to infinity and beyond. (laughs) Because you're also training them to be husbands and wives. You're training them to be leaders, adults, pillars of society. But you're also training to be mothers and fathers, husbands and wives. And all those things matter. Number seven, keep your word. Again, I've reflected this a couple times, but it deserves its own little chunk of time. You throw down the gauntlet, you stay united, and he doesn't eat dinner for two days. You just have to do it. Again, this goes to that Deuteronomy 21, 18, a stubborn and rebellious son will not listen or turn toward them. He won't listen to the parents. You become untrustworthy. He can't listen to you because he's hearing two different things or he's what he's hearing and what he's seeing don't line up. You can't watch TV the rest of the day. Well, by golly, I don't care if he's sweet as pie or you are stressed as can be, you got a migraine, whatever. If you said no TV, it's no TV. If you said no dinner, it's no dinner. It's not, you know, a big snack. It's not a, oh, here, let me slide you a protein bar. None of that. You've got to keep your word. Because you know what? They're going to push. Kids are master manipulators. They, they will find a way. And if you give one time, they're going to hit you twice as hard the next time because they know it worked. If they can get away with something once, I don't know, crying or, oh, my stomach is so hungry. I'm crying so hungry. I'm so hungry. Uh, you know what? You're not that hungry. You'll be fine. Breakfast is at 8 a.m. So you have the, the hearing two different voices in not staying united. This is make your actions line up with your words. You have to keep your word. Okay. Deuteronomy 21, 19 or 20 basically says when you have this kid who's rebellious and doesn't listen to the voice of the father and the voice of the mother, you can take him to the city gate and the elders will stone him to death. Yes, they will stone him to death. It's the parents are condemning their child to death. Now, you and I know, we who live brightly know that death means separation from God, separation from the source of protection, provision, security, all those things that God offers us, that's the life that you're presenting them is a life of death. A rebellious child in a way is condemned to a life of struggle because he can't trust authority. He doesn't know who to believe. He doesn't believe the punishment is warranted or they won't admit they're they're failed because the person in authority falls through on the follow through because they feel like they've overdone it or they've got guilt or they've got whatever. Those are character traits that you do not want your children to have. They are certainly not character traits society wants your children to have, right? Look around the playground. You'll see it. Parents take extreme unrealistic demands and consequences and then they just let it go. In one of the foundational ones, I talked about this mother at the airport. Well, that's fine. We're not going to Disney or we're not going to the beach. 
and the kid was crying. He was tired. He was in an airport. It was bedtime. It's like, really? You're sitting in the airport. The kid knows you've got tickets. The kid's pretty sure you're not going to not go to the beach just because he's crying, right? A child who can't believe what his parent says can't believe in God. I mean, he can't see or touch God like he can see and touch you. Again, as parents, we represent God. So you need to keep your word. Your actions and your words have to align in conjunction with all these other things we've talked about. Praise your child all that you can. Encourage the positive efforts they're trying, even if they have mistakes. You tried that. I am proud of you because I don't think I would have even tried it. So good for you. Don't diminish their attempts to make things right, even if they don't do it the way you would do it. Encourage them to try again and try again like they're learning to walk. But when you make some kind of grand pronouncement, when you say something, you've got to follow through. You don't apologize. You don't rescind it. You don't try to negate it because you have to take the consequences too. So if it's two days to Disney and your kid is acting a fool and you open your mouth and say, that's it, we're canceling Disney, guess what? You better cancel Disney. Now, that's going to leave a huge impact on him, but it's probably going to leave a huge impact on you too because there's like non-refundable things going on there, right? So if you say it, you have to do it. So be careful what you say. Be slow to talk. Be slow to anger. Those are biblical things. That's tough. That's rough. That's raising adults. That's raising tomorrow's leaders. This is the best and the hardest thing you will ever do. So the seven tools for raising great adult leaders for tomorrow. And it starts with you being the best you can be, being fully committed and connected to your spouse, building an effective environment where your children can learn and grow and blossom, have family meetings where you can build that unity as a whole family. And remember that you're raising adults as a wise Sherpa, not as a authoritarian or a buddy. You and your spouse have become one. Make your words line up with what you say. Keep your word. Praise them often. Build them up. The world will tear them down. Their failures will tear them down. They need you to remind them who God created them to be. A bright light in this dark world. This is Living Brightly, and I am Elaine Cross. This is a Value for Value podcast. If you got value out of this, I would ask that you head over to ElaineCross.com. That's E-L-A-Y-N-E Cross.com and make a donation. You can get the show notes there. You can find the cornerstone, what Brightly stands for, the first eight podcasts that explain what it means to live brightly and share this with a friend. If you found this useful, share it with a friend. Tell somebody else about it so they too can benefit from what I share with you freely. And I ask that you determine what value you got from it, set a number to it, and make a donation. You can do a monthly donation or you can do a one-time donation. You can send me an email at donation at elainecross.com in the subject line, write donation question or donation comment, and I will take a look at that, read it on air, or answer your question if it aligns with what we're trying to do. Thanks for joining me. Till next time.